Do you wish there was a life insurance company that understood your unique needs as a ketogenic dieter? Well, let me introduce you to Health IQ. Go to healthiq.com slash low carb. Use the promo code low carb when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Health IQ uses science and data to secure the lowest rates on life insurance for health conscious people, including runners, cyclists, strength trainers, and yes, even you, the ketogenic dieter. 56% of Health IQ customers will save between 4 and 33% on life insurance, and these savings are exclusive to Health IQ. Just like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. Go to healthiq.com slash low carb and be sure to mention the promo code low carb when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Health IQ. Are you ready to take your ketogenic lifestyle to the next level? Go to EnergizeMyHealth.com where you will learn all about the Beamer therapy for your health. Now, I feel so fortunate to have discovered this life-changing technology and I feel compelled to share it with all my fellow ketonians and fasters out there. This technology could very well change the face of modern medicine as we know it. So what is Beamer therapy? Beamer therapy consists of exposing the body to low-level pulse electromagnetic fields. Think of these magnetic fields as sound waves that permeate through every cell in the body. These magnetic signals are delivered by way of a full body mat and several focused applicators. While there are several systems on the market currently, each one touting the benefits of their unique waveforms and frequencies, the most important thing to consider when choosing among them is proof of efficacy. And not only does Beamer hold five worldwide patents on their proven technology, but the Beamer has also been shown in a blind study to be far superior to the rest of the competition. Beamer enhances blood flow, oxygen supply, cardiac function, physical fitness, strength, and stamina, concentration, mental acuity, stress reduction, relaxation, sleep management, and so much more. Again, go to EnergizeMyHealth.com to get all the full details about Beamer and get your Beamer today. Today's featured audio is from the 2017 Low Carb Cruise. Go to lowcarbcruiseinfo.com to join us in 2018 for two exciting cruises, the 11th annual Low Carb Cruise coming May 20th through the 27th, and then a bonus Keto 101 cruise coming September 23rd through the 30th, 2018. Get full details at lowcarbcruiseinfo.com. Coming up in episode 1349, another Q&A workshop from Dr. Stephen Finney. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author you're like the LL Cool J of podcasting Jimmy Moore I was just wondering is it harder if you have insulin resistance to get into that little island of ketosis that you had on your graph the other day like does the insulin resistance um, prevent you to 
getting there as easy as maybe other people. That one? Yeah. So getting to the A, you've got to keep your carbs, what most people would consider unnaturally low. You've got to keep your protein in moderation. And then if you're insulin resistant, it's even harder to get the values uh, certainly above one. So in our study in Indiana, uh, at 10, over 10 weeks, the mean, the average ketone value for the whole population was 0.6 millimolar, which means some of the people aren't getting the 0.5 because they're, you know, the, the people with diabetes are insulin resistant. It's hard to do, um, but it, but it's, but it's, the, but the majority of people got above point, and you know, I think I can't remember the exact number, but the majority of people got above point five and stayed above point five consistently for ten weeks, and we're tracking that out to a year, and it drops off as people get farther out because we individualize the program, and as people become more insulin sensitive, rather than say go to higher ketones, we give them a wider range of foods to eat because you know people want variety and they want to be able to you know, have a taco with. With their kids in the or whatever, um, so yeah, it's your, your question is, is: is it hard when the more insulin resistant? Yes, uh, but as your insulin resistance improves, it gives you either you can get higher ketones or you get a broader range of foods, one or the other. Okay, the, the longer you're in ketosis, the, do your blood ketones tend to come down and maybe stabilize at a lower level because you're using them? Your body's not used to using them, so there's not as much in your blood. So the question is, if the longer you're in ketosis, does, do the levers, levels typically come down lower? To the extent that people have carbohydrate creep, that is, you know, if two ounces of berries is good once a day, they have four ounces of berries twice a day, no. But for the same level of carb restriction and the same level of physical activity, um, uh, people seem to be able to maintain the same ketone levels year after year after year. Uh, and we have some very type A people who've kept records for a couple years and and uh, measured ketones, and uh, they, 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 it appears to be a fairly um, sustainable um, response as long as the diet is consistent. Uh, Can you please share your thoughts on using exogenous ketones uh, with a ketogenic diet for weight loss? Uh, exogenous ketones, uh, what I think about them in terms of a weight loss diet. Um, I, I, a, I don't have it, I'm not selling any ketone products, uh, so I'm, I'm not, I don't have a financial reason to support, to promote them. Um, but I think two of the limitations are uh, price and taste. Um, well, that aside, well, 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 let's put it in, in, in perspective. So I have taken the, uh, somebody's product that has seven grams of beta-hydroxybutyrate in it and used it multiple times. Um, and I can eat almost anything if I put my mind to it and I get it down. And my levels come up modestly. But they don't stay up. For me, it doesn't stay up very well. Um, but if I'm following, you know, my less than 50 gram moderate protein, less than 50 grams of carbohydrate moderate protein diet day in and day out, my liver is making between 50 and 100 grams of ketones per day. It's, you know, the, the packets that don't taste good are 7 grams each. And, you know, and the, the 
price is a dollar, you know, current retail price is a dollar per gram of beta hydroxybutyrate. So my liver is producing minimum weight. <laughs> All I have to do is eat olive oil and butter. Um, so, and the other factor is that ketones contain energy. And if you want to lose weight, why not make them from body fat rather than eat them from the outside? Now, yes, for satiety, when you're on a well-formulated ketogenic diet, you're eating enough fat to be satiated. I don't know that anybody's done studies to prove that eating ketones is satiated. Now, there are things that are satiating and non-satiating. Yeah. A, a high carbohydrate diet at a Chinese restaurant, you feel full when you walk out, but two hours later you're hungry, right? That's non-satiating. Uh, if you've ever gone to a bar and had three drinks before a meal, does that reduce your appetite for the meal? But every drink is 110 calories of alcohol. Alcohol is non-satiating. I don't know that beta hydroxybutyrate consumed or so is satiating. And so if you want to lose weight, do things that, you know, that your strategy should be to mobilize endogenous calories and, and still be satiated. And so that's why I think having your liver do at least minimum wage work 24-7 for you is, is a better strategy than mine. Now, for an elderly person with Alzheimer's, and again, there's a lot of research now being done in neurological diseases uh, across the spectrum of children, seizures, children with um, uh, attention deficit disorder, um, and <coughs> up through and including Alzheimer's disease, getting an elderly person, institutionalized person, to eat a ketogenic diet, or even getting the institution that's housing and caring for and feeding them to feed them a ketogenic diet is hard. But if you can give them three packets of formula per day, and that enhances brain fuel flow, um, that may be a very good thing. That has to be proven yet. But if there are opportunities where exogenous ketones may be very valuable. Uh, the guy who won the Tour de France, Chris Froome, um, came uh, from a team that also did very well in the uh, 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 London Olympics and in bicycling, and, the, and it is said that the London Olympics bicycling team, the, the British bicycling team that did very well, uh, had a supply of exogenous ketones. So, but you know, if, you're, if you win a race like the Tour de France, or you win a medal at the Olympics, are you gonna go out and tell people what you did? You're gonna do what you know? So we don't know what they did for sure. But the rumors are that, that in some uh, areas of, of uh, endurance performance that, that ketones are, are in, you know, going to make their way into the realm of, um, uh, let's say, ergogenic aids. We're not going to call them drugs, and we're not going to call them doping. Brian, do you want to comment on that, since you probably know a bit about that? Uh, yeah, so uh, that's there's like two applications that <laughs> I feel really anything for exogenous ketones. None of them are for weight loss. There are, there's an application for, uh, for therapeutic ketosis, when people are not able to reach a certain necessary level, like cancer patients, uh, <coughs> epileptic patients, uh, someone suffering from any kind of neurological disease, exogenous ketones help. The other one is, as Dr. Finney said, for specifically for endurance type uh, athletic activity. Because it allows you, uh, the studies show that you know, you rise after you do a certain level of aerobic activity, but it's going to drop. Pretty, pretty well. So that same kind of activity, that same kind of drop happens while you're doing it as well. So long range, like the Tour de France is not like a one hour race. It's over two weeks and you're going up and down mountains. So you've got to be able to sustain that 
and you can only do so much by, uh, your body's going to start to fatigue no matter what. So the, the constant ingestion of, of exogenous ketones, and yes, Rune's team, they were all using <laughs> exogenous ketones. Um, by allowing themselves to do that, they reserve their body fat to be due to, to, in order to sustain it for the period of time. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? So they're not burning through their internal stores. Now they're never going to burn through all their fat anyway because they got way too much fuel on themselves, even those skinny guys running the bikes. But in order to preserve, when it comes time to, I don't have time to get something, right? So it's, it's a situation where I got to race to this point and I don't have time to stop or I don't have time to reach down. I need to focus on leaning straight ahead. That's when they need to worry about, uh, previously to that, they, they ingested the, the ketones in order to sustain, to get to that point. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? And the one other factor that comes into play here for a multi-day event like that is recovery. Oh, absolutely. The, the people who, uh, athletes who adopt a, the, uh, a ketogenic diet, <laughs> well, in their training, will do very intense days of training, then they'll take a couple days off to recover. On the ketogenic diet, they do very intense training, take one day off, and then the next day, the day after that, they say, wow, I'm ready to go again. That their volume of training can go up, but also their tolerance of high volume exercise in a brutal event like the Tour de France, you know, they race for, it's a 22-day race, and 20 of those 22 days, they're in the saddle racing. They only get two rest days in, in a three-week time period. And the, the recovery between days is markedly enhanced, which gives them an edge over the competition. Uh, but we didn't come to talk about sports performance. Uh, Pedro? Can you tell something about um, this side that you do with the people? How many of those people were hyperresponders introducing cholesterol much higher or what? <laughs> the expectation was to be lower and everything, but we have those cases where, you know, those patients, uh, LDL goes very high and same as cholesterol and all that. <laughs> Good. Good question. So the study we're doing, the reason we're doing it in Indiana, not just because it's in America's heartland, but because a remarkable physician is in practice in the town of Lafayette. Her name is Dr. Sarah Hulberg. If you haven't seen her TED Talk on YouTube, uh, you're in the minority in the world now, I think. No, I'm just joking. It's had, I think, 1.7 million views and it's been up for just about two years where she basically gets up a in front of a, 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 a tent stage and says, you know, it's really stupid if, you have, if you're insulin resistant and you're taking insulin and you're giving people more carbohydrates. Maybe we should do it the other way. Uh, and she had been practicing low-carb nutrition in her practice for two years. And a couple of years ago, literally a week or a month before she did her TED Talk, she walked up to a meeting and she's this very gentle, subtle person. She goes up and says, Steve, you want to have to talk because some of my people's LDL cholesterols are going through the roof. And is that dangerous? We've got to figure that out. And so that's how we ended up doing a study in Indiana uh, with Dr. Hallberg. And our, one of our goals in the study is to look at carotid ultrasounds, particularly in, the, in that subgroup of people. So when you put people on this diet, some people's cholesterol goes down, and their particularly the LDL goes down, and their HDL typically goes up. You know, good goes up, bad goes down. But there's a quarter to a third of people whose LDL cholesterol goes up. Their HDL may go up, their triglycerides may go down, so good things happen. But that rise in LDL is scary. And we need to know, is that subgroup of people at risk with this diet? And if so, we would expect to see damage, increasing damage to the lining of the carotid artery. And so we're doing 
provided ultrasounds on these people over a course of two years uh, to, answer, to, to, do, to answer that question. So I, I can't answer your question, but you know, we are trying to answer the question. Um, but when we see HDL cholesterol go up 10-15%, and we see triglycerides come down by 20-30-40%, and we also see biomarkers of inflammation, the two we've measured so far are CRP and total white blood cell count, both come down very consistently across the group. It's not the some go up and some go, it, it's a very consistent problem. All those footprints in the sand are leading us towards a, a conclusion that this is safe. The one variant that we have to still have to figure out is the LDL. And we're besides doing the standard LDL, we're measuring uh, NMR values to look at particle LDL particle count and particle size. Uh, so you know, we've, we've got a lot of questions to answer, but uh, you know, I can say for the first time in 40 years, I think we're getting close to answering. <laughs> yeah. How does fasting damage your metabolism? Hmm? You mentioned that fasting damages your metabolism. Could you explain? Uh, so the question is, uh, I stated fasting damages one's metabolism, um, and. Uh, question is, how, how deep should I get into this? <laughs> uh, there have been studies done of fasting. Of, you know, well, you know, modern science has been examining what fasting does to humans uh, for uh, over 100 years. There was a guy named Benedict who uh, did studies on, on uh, fasting humans in 1918. They came to the conclusion that after a month of fasting, people had lost... Um, uh, about 10% of their lean, t lean tissue. Um, and uh, that, you know, 1918, you know, what did people know back then? But very well done science in the 1960s and 70s up to about 1980 answered that question very clearly that um, total fasting um, uh, does, does not, you know, even if you have a lot of extra body fat, you're not, the, your, your lean tissue is not protected by the body fat. They're starting on the second day of a total fast, the body is losing lean tissue. And it loses it most rapidly at the start. And then over the course of three or four weeks, when you get out to the end of a month, you're down to the point where you're only losing about a quarter pound of lean body mass a day. Um, if you then continue to fast for another month to get you out to 60 days, it's, it's still that quarter pound. That's about the farthest, lowest people can get to conserve lean tissue. Uh, and there's a very sad experiment that was not done on purpose that a group of, of um, uh, uh, members of the Irish Republican Army who were arrested in Northern Ireland back when the British were you know, in, the, in battle with uh, Irish separatists. Uh, these... Um, members of the IRA, Irish Republican Army, went on a hunger strike and they were not force-fed and seven of them died uh, by self-afflicted starvation. And, the, and these are relatively very lean, but, uh, yeah, but healthy males, but, but, but normal body fat content, not, not lean like athletes. And the mean time to, to, to death from starvation was about 70 days. And people died when they have lost half their lean tissue. It isn't that you get down to 1% of your lean tissue and then you die and you disappear. It's once you get to half of your normal lean body mass, you don't have enough um, protein 
met metabolic capability to preserve life. Uh, so this is not a minor issue. And unfortunately, there's some misunderstanding about nitrogen, that is, you know, the breakdown products of protein excretion when you're fasting. Um, uh, that have, I think, been misinterpreted. And I'm Jimmy Moore's guest here on this on this program, or, you know, on this cruise, and I don't want to say, you know, I'm right and, and somebody else is wrong. But there, I think there are some misunderstandings about uh, the amount of lean tissue loss that can occur. For each pound of lean tissue you lose, you lose a certain degree of your resting metabolic rate. Because muscle, even when you're not using it, is a pretty expensive day to have in your body. You know, so a pound of muscle burns a lot more calories per day than a pound of body fat does. And so with the progressive loss of lean tissue, you have progressive loss of resting metabolism. When people have done studies, they've, they've actually, during World War II, there was a, a classic, uh, not very nice study done in Minnesota, where they took a group of conscientious, conscientious objectors, and in World War II, if you're a conscientious objector, you didn't get to go work in some relief situation someplace. You were put in jail. Uh, and they took a group of these guys and said, you don't have to be in jail. You just come and you know, we're going to do an experiment. You're going to help us do it because you're going to do the laboratory work and stuff. But we're also going to give you half rations. We're going to feed you half of your daily, normal daily intake and see what happens to you over the course of six months. Why did they do this? Because when um, uh, uh, soldiers, um, the civilians, etc., were put into labor camps in, in Germany, and they were fed typically about 1,500 calories a day. And we knew that if and when we won the war, we were going to have millions of, of, of malnourished people that we had to refeed. And how, what does that malnutrition do to their work performance, and how do we refeed them to get them back to the point where they can be gainfully employed and self-supporting? So they created malnutrition in this group of males over six months <clears throat> where they lost a third of their lean body mass by eating not, nothing, by, by feeding them 1,500 calories a day and, and something close to the recommended daily amount of dietary protein intake um, because the calorie restriction made them less efficient in their use of protein. And then they refed them different, they used different strategies. How much protein? Do we feed them a lot of protein? At the start, do we give them a lot of carbs or a lot of fat? And they tried different strategies. How do we build lean body mass back up? And what they found was they could not bring them back to their normal lean body mass without them gaining extra body fat. There was no dietary strategy where they, but they didn't try ketogenic diet. But you know, using you know, a mix of proteins and fats and carbohydrates, um, where there was always some carbo, you know, a significant amount of carbohydrate they could not get their lean tissue up to normal without having them have more body fat than they started with. Which implies that the body had become very conservative around energy. And if you subject it to privation, its memory says, I don't want to get stuck with that again. So next time there's a famine, I'm going to have more body fat to get me through it. So it's actually, whoever designed human metabolism was brilliant. Uh, because if you have one famine, you're in your lifetime likely to have another. Uh, but it it's clearly indicates that the body is not a completely neutral about being deprived of energy uh, to the point that it loses a significant amount of lean body mass. Now, the, m the most fascinating 
the study that was done not intentionally, well, intentionally after the fact is you've probably seen the Biggest Loser show, which I'm glad I, th- I don't think it's on anymore because I, th- I, th- I think it was very abusive of the people that that participated in trying to you know win the the Biggest Loser title. But they looked at a group who who went through in one season where it was a brutal combination of caloric restriction and and very high volume, very intense exercise. And we looked at them four years later. Almost all of them had gained back most, if not all, of what they'd lost. And even though they were back to their, those who got back to their starting weight, their resting metabolism was lower than it had been before they went through. Which means, again, the body said, if I'm going to be subjected to that kind of combination of intense exercise and caloric restriction, I'm going to start out being really restrictive in how many calories I expend. And so the, the body becomes uh, much more prone to gain tissue, to gain fat tissue, when you um, uh, encourage it to store body fat and keep its metabolism low. Uh, and you know, four years is a long time for the body to maintain that that uh, uh, damage in terms of its metabolic rate. And then I, I won't brag, but I published a study back in 1988 that said when you combine caloric restriction and high volume exercise, the exercise, some of the textbooks still say the exercise will make your metabolic rate go up and will overcome the, the effect of caloric restriction. No, you actually get a greater reduction in resting metabolism. That, and, and again, we only did a, a six week long study. We didn't get to do it for years. But it, you know, people tell me that when they do a draconian diet and do a lot of exercise, uh, they really feel like they've been set up you know, and what they experience in the next year or two is 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 that it's much harder to to maintain. So, Brian, you want to get a? Well, I kind of have a follow-on question to that. Sure. There's a chart that's going around in your webs that is a four pie chart. I think you it's on your slides, and it's talking about uh, progression through basically the uh, well formula. That's the one. And in there, there's a there's a, a decrease in the amount of Dietary fat and an increase amount, an increasing amount of body fat. And what I'm trying to figure out is, especially based on what you just said, how can you determine that? If you if you're not eating the correct amount, how are you going to force your body to to fill that void with body fat? Uh, based upon, especially you know, given the context that you just said about fasting, where it will go through protein first, or it'll go through lean tissue first, and then you know, store it for the next famine sort of thing. Can you give an idea of the context of this, or is it being misrepresented, or am I just really stupid and not understand? Uh, <clears throat> let me try the first one. Okay. Um, so what Jeff and I tried to do with this diagram, and if maybe we're overly eager to put too much stuff in here, was to uh, depict what happens over the course of, let's say, six months or a year, for an individual who decides to adopt a well-formulated ketogenic diet. Um, and when we have, in multiple studies that we've done with people who are overweight with or without metabolic syndrome, um, but this is not people with diabetes, and we uh, tell them to restrict their carbohydrates to less than, uh, say, 20 or 30 grams per day, and eat protein in moderation, and eat fat to satiety. Um, 
And what do they do? And so if you start with somebody who weighs 200 pounds, that would be in the order of like uh, 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 90 kilos or so. Um, that person's daily energy expenditure is going to be, unless they're very vigorously active, going to be about 2,800 calories a day. And people say, well, now I, I know that my body only burns 15 or 1,800 calories a day, uh, but when we do metabolic testing with these people, it's, this, this number of 2,800 is pretty robust. Um, <clears throat> when they restrict the carbs and eat protein in moderation, they eat fat to satiety. It's very common that they will eat only about 1,400 calories a day. But if they're burning 2,800, that means half of it's coming, the other half's coming from body fat. So the purple part here is the body's contribution of fat. Uh, <clears throat> and this is not purposeful caloric restriction if they're following our directions, they're eating to satiety. So when we give enough protein, so the 20% here, by the way, if if you think about it, what's what they see on their what they see on their plate each day is only the one hand half here. Because they don't see the other halves coming. So the, that's coming from the body's donation. <clears throat> so when they look at this and think in terms of macros, what they're seeing is not 25% fat, half of what's on their plate is fat. 40% of what's on their plate is protein, and 10% is carbs. They say, well, I mean, my macros are, you know, 50, 40, 10. But what the body is burning, the macros the body's burning, are what you see in this whole pie chart here. So it gets confusing when you talk about macros, and that's why we talk about grams of carbs and grams of protein uh, and, and eating to satiety, because, you know, trying to figure this out in terms of... of including the body fat contribution, it, it becomes very confusing. <coughs> but again, when people do this for a time and, and they're losing a few pounds a week, um, over time, um, as the weight comes down, two things happen. One is, if you're carrying around 20 pounds less body fat, which among other things, among other things means every time you take a breath, you're not lifting as much fat up to breathe. Every time you walk a flight of stairs, you're not carrying a 20-pound pack. Their metabolism comes down somewhat. But they're still losing weight because they're still, let's say, you know, and the other thing that happens, their appetite comes up with it. When they're eating to satiety, they naturally want to eat a little bit more. <clears throat> and so their caloric intake, as they lose weight, gradually comes up, their metabolism comes down. And at some point, they get to a point where intake and metabolism are the same, which means they're weight-stable, they're not losing any weight. People like to add more foods as they go along, and as long as they're metabolically, they're okay, and they're still, um, you know, their blood lipids look good, and they're, they're, if they have prediabetes, their glucose values look fine. We let them have a bit more carbs. Uh, they'll come to a new steady state. So this is weight maintenance. And so you notice on this pie graph here, there's nothing, there's no purple contribution anymore because they're not mobilizing body fat. They're weight stable. What's the metabolism in there? Is that on there? Is that the expenditure? No. The expenditure is their daily energy expenditure. And by the way, you'll notice that we, we don't, you don't see an increasing X calories per day of exercise. 
because when you start with somebody even that heavy, when you if you tell them, you know, go out and burn 300 calories a day with exercise, the most likely thing they're going to do is hurt themselves. So we save exercise to be a maintenance tool, not to be a weight loss tool. So we, we talk about exercise if they want to do it, and it's fun, we have to do it here. Right, thank you for, in your talk, saying exactly that, that, you know, if, if you don't love it, you're not going to do it for your, the rest of your life. Uh, so exercise, exercise is not a major component of this process here. But the goal here is to demonstrate that, you know, you're, as you lose weight, even if you're, you're maintaining lean body mass very effectively, your daily energy expenditure is going to come down associated with your weight change. Uh, and <clears throat> then uh, eventually you get to us, this is, would be weight maintenance, a steady state. Now, if this person wanted to weigh not 150 pounds, but 130 pounds, they would say, well, yeah, I, I, I've stalled. I, you know, my weight loss has stalled. And we say, you know, if you lose 50 pounds in a year, and you, you maintain it for a year, um, you know, you have achieved a, a phenomenal success. Um, uh, yeah, don't threaten this success by trying to right away to lose more. But if a person's been in, in a, at weight stable for a year and they have controlled this, particularly they've begun to add physical activity that they enjoy, then they can then begin to move to, 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 to shed a few more pounds in year two or year three of this, of what has to be a long-term endeavor. Do you wish there was a life insurance company that understood your unique needs as a ketogenic guider? Well, let me introduce you to Health IQ. Go to healthiq.com slash low carb. Use the promo code low carb when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Health IQ uses science and data to secure the lowest rates on life insurance for health conscious people, including runners, cyclists, strength trainers, and yes, even you, the ketogenic dieter. 56% of Health IQ customers will save between 4 and 33% on life insurance, and these savings are exclusive to Health IQ. Just like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. Go to healthiq.com slash low-carb and be sure to mention the promo code low-carb when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Health IQ. Would you like to test your blood ketones for just $1 per strip? Join the Keto Clarity Club at bestketonetest.com for the Keto Mojo blood ketone and blood glucose testing. And join the club to get $1 strips when purchased in vials of 50. You get to choose how often that they will ship to you and you'll still get that $1 price per strip. And while you're at bestketonetest.com, make sure you get the meter and we also have glucose strips sold in vials of 50 and you'll get five dollars off with the coupon code jimmy there's also the ketonian special kit which allows you to get the meter lancet as well as a starter pack of blood ketone test strips again it's bestketonetest.com for the keto mojo blood ketone and blood glucose testing bestketonetest.com 
Are you a fan of pizza but don't like all the carbohydrates that come in the crust? Well, let me introduce you to Real Good Pizzas. They have four grams of carbohydrates. The crust is made from all-natural chicken breast and Parmesan cheese. They also recently launched a brand new item, breakfast pizzas, which also only have four grams of carbohydrates with bacon and sausage available. Real Good Pizza is now available in 2000 Kroger Family Grocery Stores nationwide, and they're currently offering free shipping as well as 10% off when you use the coupon code JIMMY at checkout at realgoodfoods.com. Real Good Pizza. Yes, sir. Uh, just a data point. When I was in my early 20s, I had a roommate who was getting a PhD in exercise physiology, and he recruited me into one of his studies, and he had me uh, on his exercise bike measuring CO2 and all that, mm-hmm. my metabolic rate, he started out risking the metabolic rate, drove me to exhaustion, and he also did the dumping various other measurements. And then came back uh, two hours later to measure my resting metabolic rate again. They found that uh, well, what he told me was that most of the subjects that were like football players, the, that routine would raise the metabolic rate for 24 to 36 hours. And me, I went back to basal metabolism rate in two hours and said, well, fat people should do that. <laughs> you didn't know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there has have been studies done looking at the effect of high intensity exercise on competition athletes, and it does have that effect of raising their metabolic rate for uh, half a day or a day afterwards. Um, but uh, we were mentioning before we got started that physical performance is. Uh, many people assume that it's a function of training. The more you train, the better your performance is. And that, that is true to some degree. But the primary determinant of, of your um, peak muscle strength and your peak aerobic power are inherited. You're born with them. And by training, you can increase it somewhat. But if you're born with a low aerobic power, you are all the training in the world isn't going to get you close to the aerobic power of somebody who's winning, um, you know, marathons or or the Tour de France, because those people were born with that cap- with that capability, uh, and what makes them winning athletes is they've honed it to a fine edge. Um, so some people are born to be piano players, and some people are born to be marathon runners. Uh, and each of them can be world class at what they do. We just have to figure out what we're good at. Um, uh, and then the other factor here is what we're throwing into this 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 process now is by taking away the carbs and inducing nutritional ketosis. As Dr. Veronica uh, 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 mentioned, that we're actually affecting gene function, gene expression, and turning off bad genes and selectively and turning on good genes selectively, um, which means some of these things that, quote, you know, fat people have, they don't have to own. So you they can be controlled. Are you saying that my return to a basal metabolism rate in a very short time is genetic? Yes. And the way we know that is that in, in some elegant studies done in identical twins, 
So now what's neat is you can bring two copies of the same genotype into a research facility and lock them up and either restrict their calories from, for weeks or months at a time or have them do lots of exercise for weeks or months at a time and then look at it affects, how it affects them. And some people who are overweight and exercise will lose quite a bit of weight. And other people who are overweight and do the exact same amount of exercise don't lose weight. And when you do it on identical twins, they are each twin either loses they lose weight together or don't lose weight together. You don't find identical twins where one of them loses a lot of weight with exercise and the other one loses very little with exercise. Which means that the ability, particularly to use exercise or caloric restriction to achieve weight loss is in part an inherited characteristic. And those are elegant studies done by really top-notch researchers, but you don't hear about that in the lay press very much because it's, you know, people don't want to hear that, that you know, it's, a, it's an inborn characteristic. But the really neat thing about nutritional ketosis is we now have a tool, we have a molecule that'll go into the nucleus of your cells and start messing in a good way with some of those bad genes. We can shut down inflammation. We reduce the body's uh, production of, of use, use of carbohydrate to make it into fat. We reduce the levels of, of uh, tissue damage from oxidative stress. Um, so you know, we, we've got a, a neat tool. I, I, um, but you know, I, I, I don't want to tell you that we can completely reverse what you were born with, but we can certainly give you um, a bit of a crowbar to move it uh, away from uh, uh, some of its more difficult or, or dangerous effects. Yes? I just wanted to see some of the practical slides you had about uh, just how to maintain and sustain uh, the ketogenic diet and just the objective side of it, how you're having your patients measure every day, like in the first month, and then reduce the frequency, or are you measuring ketones every day for the the whole duration of the year, or how are you, like, what would your advice be for us at home trying to follow the ketogenic diet? So the question is for measuring ketones, is that specifically? Measuring ketones and also just, um, yeah. Okay. Um, people vary in how many times they need to measure their ketones before they figure out, before this becomes a, a sustainable habit. So some people, um, <clears throat> you know, people who are either are trained as or are just born to be engineers will, in a month of measuring their ketones, figure out this is what I eat on Monday, this is what I eat on Tuesday, this is what I eat on Wednesday, and this will keep my ketones up and I'm just not going to change. And if we ask them to keep measuring their ketones, they say, well, of course, always the same. And other people want to try variations on things, uh, and they'll do it for uh, daily for six months or so. Um, by the end of six months, most people have a pretty good sense of how they're responding to what they, they have, uh, you know, what they, how, how they've adapted the choice of foods to meet their tastes and their needs. And then the time to, to measure ketones is if something changes. Like, you know, they decide they want to add you know, legumes. So if they want to add beans and, and peas and um, and uh, Stuff, you know, I want to start making chili and, and uh, tacos with the, you know, low carbohydrate taco shells and stuff like that. Um, 
we advise that if you're going to add new foods, um, then then measure your ketones to make sure it's still keeping you in in the the beneficial range. Um, and then <coughs> if somebody over the course, so let's say this person loses to 150 pounds and stays stable for a year, and then they decide that they really want to weigh 130 pounds, and they've you know really they own this weight and they're stable and they're comfortable with that. And by the way, they've gotten over some of the um, uh, psychosocial issues around weight loss. And by the way, I'm sure there are people here in the room who can tell stories, but, you know, the late, the thin person who's never been heavy, who hasn't given a whole lot of thought, will thank me, oh, if you lost 50 pounds, your life's going to be a whole lot better. You know, you're healthier, you're happier, everybody around you is happier. No. If you lose 50 pounds, people around you initially are confused, upset, anxious, you know, when someone that you love loses 50 pounds, your instinct is to feed them. Because before we had language, we had culture, and we had tribes, and people in your tribes were wasting, you'd bring them food. Because, you know, you wanted to keep everybody in the tribe strong, right? I'm, I'm kind of you know, projecting what life was like before there was language, but our instincts are when somebody around you is losing weight, that we should feed them. And sometimes the, the people who love you the most are the ones who are, you know, it seems like they're trying to sabotage what you're doing. Um, and so when people lose a lot of weight, it takes about, a, oftentimes, a year or more for the people around you to settle down and not be so upset by it. Um, you know, and some people are, frankly, jealous and want to sabotage you, but that's, that's a different category. It takes time to settle that. Once you get that down, and then you say, I want to lose another 20 pounds, typically you're going to have to go back down in carbs from 55 or 60 or 70, get back down to 20 or 30, and that's the time to begin to, to uh, go back to regular ketone testing to, to be sure that it's that you're achieving the, the ketone value that is, is going to assist you in, in fuel flow and, and the benefits that will uh, help you achieve that, that uh, subsequent weight loss. Show us the slide of the daily diet. I, I thought I saw that. Um, what you would uh, kind of eat? I had sausages. And, uh, yep. There it is. So people typically ask Jeff Bullock and, and or me, "What do you eat?" And since we're both about the same weight and the same height, he's younger, smarter, stronger, but. We eat about the same level, which is about 2,800 calories a day. Um, we, we put this up just to indicate the range of things that one can eat. It's not just all meat and fat. Um, you know, and one can, can argue about how many vegetables and what, which vegetables to eat, but obviously there are non-starchy vegetables on here. By the way, the tomato bisque is made with real tomatoes. I, you know, I, make, I, I make tomato bisque using my own homemade chicken broth and fresh tomatoes from the garden and fresh basil and whole and heavy cream and it's you know people line up and ask for it. Um, but one of the reasons that we do add in vegetables here is that one of the nutrients that even if you're using real protein, not not processed meats, but you know, real fed, fresh um, natural sources of protein, that you need more potassium than you get from just the protein. 
and that you can get potassium if you make a, you know, a lot of bone broth and get it from that. Uh, but the, the vegetables here are a source of potassium. And again, not only do you want to get five grams of sodium a day, you want to get four, a minimum four grams of potassium per day. And there's only about two grams of potassium in the meat. So the other two grams have to come from tomatoes, uh, vegetables, etc., as uh, in order to achieve the potassium, the optimum potassium intake. But maybe that's not what you wanted to know. No, that's exactly. I, I wanted to see that slide. So can I ask you the slide where you talk about sustaining the diet? Sure, but I'll also mention that uh, um, you know in the, the Art and Science of Low Carb Living, which is the book we self-published um, a few years back. We have a seven seven days of this. This is just one of those days. Uh, and again, you can do this as a vegetarian. It's hard to do it as a vegan, but you can do it as a lacto-ovo-vegetarian reasonably uh, easily. It doesn't have to be a high meat diet. It doesn't have to be any red meat in this diet. Um, you know, there's a lot of variability and a lot of choice. And if you connect with a a a, a dietitian who is at least sympathetic to to this this uh, mode of living, you know, you can get the kind of guidance you need in terms of carbs and, and, and protein um, and have somebody give you meal plans. You don't have to figure it all by, up, up, out by yourself. So in terms of sustainability, this is only partially tongue-in-cheek, but you know, the way you do this is you know, moderate protein, enough energy, meaning eat to satiety, and that, that enough value changes as your weight goes down, and as you know, as your body gets you know gets more efficient by having lost the, the the weight, you most people get to a new steady state. And so when people ask me what 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 weight should I get to? What's my goal weight? What should I weigh? And I say I don't know. My answer is it's the weight you can get to without too too much of a struggle. And when you get there, still have a life. Having a life means enjoying your food being able to live with other people in your household. So you aren't sitting in a different room eating your meal that, that, that uh, you know, separates you from them. Uh, and so in our household, when I was doing low carb and three other people in our household were not doing low carb, we shared 80% of our food. The thing that, that, that I didn't eat were the, uh, you know, the, the, the grains, rice, pasta, potatoes, and high sugar fruit. And the things that they didn't do is they didn't squirt as much olive oil in their food as I did. Um, the right kinds of fats we talked about are critical. Mineral management, you know, supplement is, is uh, supplementing sodium, because most people when they salt to taste, they get about three grams per day. So to get to five, you have to add purposely add two grams of sodium. You can put that two grams in a water bottle and mix it with water and drink it during the day. You can, um, you know, some people just want to eat the salt. Okay, but you know, I find that broth and bouillon are my best vehicles to get it in. And by the way, here on the ship, I can't get bouillon cubes much. I only brought a few with me. Uh, in the, on the salad bar, they have kalamata olives, the Greek olives. Do you know how many Greek olives you eat to, to get one gram of sodium? Ten. Ten kalamata olives will give you a gram of sodium. One large dill pickle spear is one gram of sodium. So there are places you can go to get, not, not the sweet pickles, not the salad pickles, but the, the, the sour dill pickles, one uh, basically um, an ounce and a half spear 
of a, of a dill pickle. There's a ground sodium. So there are places you can get this even if you haven't got, got bullion. And you want to look like you're eating real food and not being snarky like <laughs> sipping on cups of bullion. Did you find those on the ship? Hmm? Mm-hmm. Dill pickles? Yes. You didn't get them here. How can you eat a hamburger without dill pickles? <laughs> I mean, it's much better to have it with pickles on a bun. Um, one of the things that we see very commonly, particularly in people with diabetes, are, are nighttime muscle cramps or post-exercise muscle cramps. And we find that we it's very effective to deal with that by providing magnesium. Uh, and the magnesium we use, and it's in the Art and Science of Low Carb Performance in Chapter 9, I think it is, uh, is a slow-release form of magnesium that doesn't cause a lack. It doesn't have a laxation effect, so if people don't have you know, upset and diarrhea if they, if they take too much. But nobody should have muscle cramps. Cramps are easily managed by adequate hydration. Sometimes it's a need for potassium, but usually it's an underlying need for magnesium that we can resolve within a few weeks of using a slow-release form of magnesium called Slomag. And there are two generic versions of it. One's called Mag Delay and one's called Mag 64. But they're in the book for a few. Don't want to buy the book. Send me an email and I'll send you a copy of that page. What types of magnesium are in that? It's mag. It's magnesium chloride in a wax matrix, which means it's slowly absorbed. But then the really neat thing about the formulation is it has calcium chloride in the same matrix. Magnesium stimulates small bowel motility, which means things go through quicker. Calcium slows down small bowel motility, and so it counteracts the magnesium effect, and so it goes slowly through your system and is more readily, more effectively absorbed. And by the way, you can buy those these this, the, those preparations at Costco behind the counter, but not not out in the floor. But it's not prescription for about seven dollars for a bottle of sixty. And most people, three pills a day for three weeks—that is, one bottle of sixty pills—will resolve their muscle cramps. So for, for nine dollars, I'm sorry, for seven dollars, seven dollars and nine cents. I think the last so price. So buy the magnesium behind the counter. Ask the pharmacist for it. Yes, the pharmacist for it, but it's not prescription. So they have some things which are non-prescription, but behind the register, and by the way, I do have a a modest amount of of small small equity stake in Costco, but (laughs) (laughs) you're buying the magnesium isn't going to make me rich. Uh, We love Costco. What about keto testing? What kind of product do you use? Keto testing. Keto testing? You've never done what you get. Currently, the only dependable uh, measure that I, I... I count on is a um, blood glucose meter sold by Abbott called the Abbott Precision Extra. But now increasingly they're also calling it the Freestyle. And we have an example up here in the front if you want to hold it up. Um, but and and this device comes with you it's built it's made primarily for glucose testing, but Abbott make, makes a ketone strip that you put in the same meter and it measures ketones in about 15 seconds. <coughs> the bad news is that Abbott um, primarily sells these to um, for people with type 1 diabetes to check and make sure they're not going into ketoacidosis. And they didn't expect they'd sell very many, so they sell them at a price of about $5 each in the U.S. You can buy those strips from Canada mail order for $2 each. I found them in Australia. And in Australia, if you if you go to a pharmacist in Australia, you can get them for uh, about fifty cents U.S. Yeah. 
But it's the 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 airplane ticket is more physical. <laughs> yes, no, it was on it was on online. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so actually, we I for quite a while was bootlegging him for my company <laughs> through Dr. Rod Taylor, who runs Low Carb Down Under. I sent him books that he sell it, it, you know it, in Australia, and he sent me ketone strips. Uh, but then Abbott got upset with us because we as a company need to buy them through normal channels, and so we. Been negotiating with them to try to get them to be more reasonable in terms of price. That's not working out, so we're going to we're looking for a breath ketone meter soon. So we'll do something with milk and some wheels. I think I've kind of worn out my welcome here, but maybe one last question in the very back. I was wondering about the metformin dosages that you have these people on. What's their metformin so the, the question is metformin. Metformin is a drug which if, uh, reduces hepatic uh, glucose output, among other things. Um, but it turns out that uh, in animal studies, it increases animal longevity by about 20%. Um, and so when we work with people with type 2 diabetes and we take them off, we try to take them off all their meds, we don't regard metformin as a diabetes bed anymore. What we do do, the, the major, if there is a side effect of metformin, it's usually gastrointestinal upset. And people on high-dose metformin, like 500, four times a day, will oftentimes have GI side effects, and we reduce them until they don't. So many of our people are down to 50, I'm sorry, 250 of metformin twice a day. But we, you know, if they don't have GI side effects and they're tolerating that, we just leave it in place. Because, by the way, it only costs a few cents a day, it's generic. And I would, would not be surprised if, you know, they, they joke, they used to joke about putting um, uh, statins in the water to prevent heart disease. I think, forget about statins, you know, too many people are going to have side effects, but they may be willing to think about putting metformin in the water based on, on uh, its benefits in terms of both hepatic glucose output and, and potentially longevity as well. Uh, so, see, I'm a, I'm a real doctor. I, I do agree that some, some drugs are good for us. Yes. Does it matter? It doesn't matter if people have GI side effects, and particularly if they have high fasting glucoses in the morning, then the, uh, uh, the extended release may be better. But whichever dosage, and, and you know, price is always a question as well. So would you suggest that a diabetic started at 9 have it down to 5.9 over the past two and a half years with no medication? I don't take people off it if their physicians have put it on it. But she wants to be on it, but I have to take it. I see. Um, it's your call. Um, the thing that has never been studied in animals is if you put animals on a ketogenic diet and then you give them metformin, does that extend the benefit or? Does the benefit of the, because nutritional ketosis appears to work through the mTOR pathway just like metformin does. Maybe nutritional ketosis is as good or better, and you don't need metformin. That that question I think is. Got more to do in my next decade in life. Anyway, thank you for your questions. Coming up next time on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have a sneak peek of my brand new One More Thing with Jimmy podcast, as well as Keto Clarity Live podcast. Get show notes for today's episode at the Show.com. 
And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. This is a light.